Hello and welcome back to Leftist Reading, where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution and we're moving on to a new chapter. With Russia under the party's control, it's now a question of how it's going and how they're operating things. So let's see what this chapter talks about. Chapter 5. War Communism the Civil War brought about a demographic collapse and a calamitous breakdown in social relations. Footnote 1. The economic crisis that had been building up since 1914 and that erupted in 1917 led to an implosion of the industrial economy after October. By 1920-21, gross national income had fallen by more than 60%, owing mainly to the collapse of industrial production. Industrial output fell to one-fifth of its 1913 level, coal production and consumer goods production to one-quarter of their pre-war levels. Plummeting output was compounded by chaos in the transport system. By 1921-22, two-thirds of railway engines were unusable, and 1,885 kilometers of railway had been destroyed. Inflation soared to unimaginable levels. In 1922, a one-ruble banknote, Subsnek, was worth 101918 rubles. An Allied blockade added to the catastrophe. Footnote 2. Labour productively may have fallen as low as 18% of its pre-war level, brought on by the exhaustion of machinery, depletion of stocks, the breakdown of transportation, bottlenecks in supplies, a big deterioration in labour discipline, and, above all, by a decline in labour intensity brought on by hunger, malnutrition, and cold. Some recent historiography has emphasised the extent to which the Bolsheviks brought this upon themselves, but while it would be foolish to deny that their ideas and policies played a part in bringing these things into being, the socio-economic collapse was rooted in structural problems that had their origins in the First World War. The collapse of industry, together with grave food shortages, led to the near breakdown of urban life, which was particularly acute in Petrograd, and, to a lesser extent, in Moscow. Between 1917 and 1920, the percentage of the population living in towns fell from 18% to 15%. But in Petrograd, the city's population fell from 2.4 million to 722,000, and in Moscow, it fell by almost half. Footnote 3. Life was reduced to a constant search for food, fuel, shelter, and warm clothes, and to trying to avoid disease and crime. As a result of military conscription and the closure of factories, women came to outnumber men in the urban population. In spring and summer 1918, and again in summer 1919, many cities came close to starvation. In the provinces that were net consumers of food, the urban population served on about 396 grams of grain a day. Footnote 4. In 1919, over 600,000 people in Petrograd out of a population of 800,000, and over 800,000 in Moscow, out of a population of just over 1 million, 
survived thanks to the disagreeable fare on offer in free public cafeterias, schools, and workplaces. People stoked their furnaces with wooden fences, furniture, any available tree, until the fuel ran out. The literary critic Viktor Shklovsky wrote, quote, People who lived in housing with central heating died in droves. They froze to death, whole apartments of them. End quote. Footnote 5. This was an urban community whose every ounce of energy was drained by the exigencies of survival. In Moscow, the death rate, which had fallen to 231 per 10,000 in 1910 to 1914, shot up to a staggering 504 in the first half of 1919, falling to 390 in the second half of that year, only to rise again to 462 in the first half of 1920. In Petrograd, it rose from 215 in 1914 to 437 by 1918, soaring to 506 in 1920. Nationally, Almost one baby in three died before the age of one. Footnote 6. By 1920, life expectancy had fallen to 19.5 for men and 21.5 for women. Footnote 7. Against the background of perishing cold, poor diet, unsanitary conditions, and health facilities at breaking point, epidemic disease erupted on a devastating scale. Epidemics were a far greater killer than rifles and sabers. Between 1917 and 1922, around 3 million died of disease. And to this may be added the 5 million who died of starvation in 1921-22. Typhus alone claimed 1.5 million lives in 1918-1919. Footnote 8 but the struggle to survive also exacted a psychological cost. The eminent psychologist V. M. Bekhtarev observed, quote, Along with a weakening of the organism, there is a reduction of nervous psychological energy as a result of which there develops general abjection of the personality, passivity, a more or less significant weakening of mental capacity, psychological lethargy, and an insufficiency of willpower. End quote. Footnote 9. Mobilizing industry. Such was the context in which the Bolsheviks fought to hold on to power, to mobilize the battered forces of industry and agriculture in order to meet the needs of war. They gradually put in place a set of policies that they retrospectively labeled war communism. Footnote 10. These comprised an extremely centralized system of economic administration, the complete nationalization of industry, a state monopoly on grain and other agricultural products, a partial ban on private trade, rationing of key consumer items, and the militarization of labor. Historians differ in their assessment of how far these policies were dictated by the collapse of the economy and the exigencies of fighting a civil war, or how far derived from Bolshevik antipathy to the market and determination to place the whole of production and distribution in the hands of the state. As we shall see, the terms of the debate are overly polarized. To offer a broadly structural explanation of war communism is not to deny the strong influence of ideology.
there was no unanimity in the Bolshevik leadership concerning how far and how rapidly Russia could travel along the road to socialism. After his return to Russia in April, Lenin had talked of taking steps towards socialism, but by this he meant such measures as confiscation of land, nationalization of the banks, and state regulation of the economy. All measures that were compatible in principle with the continued existence of capitalism. There was agreement in the leadership on the need to impose state regulation of the economy, but opinions differed as to how far this would commence a transition to socialism. For Lenin, the model to be emulated was the German war economy, which he characterized as military state monopoly capitalism, and which he believed provided a material foundation for a gradual transition to socialism. In The Impending Catastrophe and How to Combat It, written the 10th to 14th of September 1917 while he was hiding in Finland, he elaborated on this perspective, calling for the nationalization of banks, the creation of syndicates, that is, cartels that would set sales quotas and wholesale prices in major industries, and for the compulsory organization of the population into consumer communes. Footnote 11. In the weeks after October 1917, many Bolsheviks were in a state of elation and believed that it would only be a short time before revolution broke out in more developed capitalist countries, thus accelerating the advance to socialism on an international scale. The factory committees were particularly optimistic, despite the fact that they were fighting a rearguard action to save their jobs. The Central Council of Factory Committees pressed for an all-Russian council of workers' control to regulate the entire economy. The decree on workers' control, issued on the 14th of November, vested the committees with the right to monitor all aspects of production and to make their decisions binding on employers. By and large, the trade unions were skeptical about the potential of workers' control to stem the fall in industrial production. They favoured state regulation of the economy, but were lukewarm about plans to nationalise industry, since they doubted that the government had the wherewithal to actually manage factories. On the 2nd of December 1917, the Supreme Council of National Economy, VSNKH, was created, a central organ of economic regulation that was vested with the right, quote, to confiscate, requisition, sequester, and forcibly syndicate the different branches of industry and trade, and to take other measures in the sphere of production, distribution, and state finances. End quote. Footnote 12. This was broadly what the Central Council of Factory Committee had been pressing for. Although the Supreme Council was somewhat broader in composition than it would have liked. Under its chair, the left communist N. Osinski, the Supreme Council, like the factory committees, believed it was laying the foundations of a socialist mode of production. Over the winter of 1917 to 1918, factory committees and local Soviets clashed sharply with employers over their attempts to close unprofitable enterprises. This led, between November and March 1918, to 836 enterprises being spontaneously nationalized, that is, taken over by workers' organizations, which then turned to the government for financial support to keep them running. 
the Supreme Council of National Economy took bold steps to intensify state regulation of the economy. On the 14th of December, private commercial banks were nationalized, their capital being transferred to the state bank on the 23rd of January. On the 21st of January, the loans incurred by the Tsarist government were repudiated, an action that infuriated the French and was a key reason for their intervention in the Civil War. On the 26th of January, the marine and river fleets of private and joint stock companies were nationalized, although the railway system was not nationalized in its entirety until the 28th of June. On the 22nd of April, a state monopoly on foreign trade was declared, although like much of the legislation at this time, it remained a dead letter, since contraband trade across Soviet borders continued into the 1920s. For a brief moment, Lenin seems to have shared the optimism that the advance to socialism could be rapid. To judge from his support for a radical interpretation of workers' control of production, and for the Red Guard attack on capital. The difficult negotiations over the peace treaty, however, and the ever-mounting chaos in the economy disabused him of any notion that Russia could progress to socialism in current conditions. In The Immediate Tasks of the Soviet Government, which he published in March 1918, he declared that state capitalism will be our salvation. By this, he envisaged that most industrial enterprises would remain in private ownership, but be amalgamated into syndicates under the supervision of the government. Lenin insisted that iron discipline was vital to the main objective, which he defined as, quote, the introduction of the strictest and universal accounting and control of the production and distribution of goods, raising the productivity of labor and socializing production in practice." End quote. This perspective of state capitalism enraged the left communists, who had formed a faction within the party in January 1918 to oppose the peace treaty. They wanted to see the socialization of all large-scale industry under the direction of the Sovnarkozy, or local councils of national economy. Footnote 13. Lenin further riled his left-wing critics by stating, quote, It would be extremely stupid and absurdly utopian to assume that the transition from capitalism to socialism is possible without coercion and without dictatorship. End quote. In the event, state capitalism proved to be a non-starter, since capitalists who had not already opted to take themselves and their assets abroad had little incentive to cooperate with a revolutionary socialist state. For a time, the government tried to resist the momentum for nationalization that was coming from the grassroots, but its desire to avoid paying compensation for shares owned by German nationals in private Russian companies, as stipulated by the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, led it to issue a far-reaching decree on the 28th of June 1918 that nationalized, without compensation, up to 2,000 joint-stock companies in major branches of industry, railway transportation, and urban amenities. The Supreme Council of National Economy and the Commissariats of Transport and Food were charged with running these sectors. Under the pressure of civil war, the need to establish monopoly control over scarce supplies of materials, fuel, and manufactures 
led to the nationalization of more and more enterprises. There is no doubt that this was driven by ideology, in particular by hostility to the market and by the Bolshevik preference for centralism. For example, in spring 1918, there was a serious proposal to give state orders and credits to rural artisans by organizing them into cooperative associations, a policy that might have eased the shortage of manufacturers. But the Supreme Council of National Economy took over responsibility for this and did little to implement it. Similarly, in January 1920, the All-Russian Congress of Councils of National Economy recommended that the promotion of artisanal manufacture be done through the cooperative network, which the Bolsheviks disliked for political reasons. But the Supreme Council opted instead for nationalization. On the 29th of November 1920, the government declared that all mechanized enterprises hiring more than five workers and all unmechanized enterprises hiring ten or more workers were now under state ownership. Footnote 14. The decree would have been completely unworkable, but it remained a dead letter because within weeks there was a dramatic about turn in policy, known as the New Economic Policy, or NEP. The powers of the Supreme Council of National Economy grew exponentially in response to the urgent demands of civil war, coming to embrace all sectors of industrial production, finance, procurement and distribution of supplies, transportation, and labor. The council was organized by industrial branch boards, glavki, and centers, each underpinned by a hierarchy of subordinate organs. These functioned independently from a geographically organized hierarchy of councils of national economy, Savnarkosi, at provincial and county level that was also subject to the Supreme Council. While the Glavki were supposed to integrate activity within particular industries on a national basis, the regional councils of national economy were supposed to integrate economic activities of all kinds within a particular geographical area. The Bolshevik preference for centralism, which they equated with efficiency, tended to favor the top-down approach advocated by the industrial branch boards. But reality was one in which dozens of vertically structured organizations overlapped and competed for resources, operating with little knowledge of the needs of a particular locality. Within the localities, a multiplicity of inexperienced Soviets, local councils of national economy, trade unions, and factory committees vied with one another to commandeer resources and resolve local supply problems. Footnote 15. Trotsky described how in the Urals, one province ate oats, while another fed wheat to horses, all because nothing could be done without the approval of the food commissariat in Moscow. To try to obviate these problems, on the 30th of November, 1918, a council of workers and peasants' defense was set up with extraordinary powers to mobilize material and human resources for the needs of the Red Army, and to coordinate activities between the front and the rear. From the outset, it was considered virtually the equal of the Council of People's Commissars, its powers being extensive and its decisions unchallengeable. The most that can be said is that this hyper-centralized system of economic administration kept the army supplied. In other respects, however, it led to serious imbalances in supplies, 
strain on the transport system, lack of incentives for grassroots producers, and to terrible waste. The centralization of productive activity in the hands of the state also led to a vast increase in the numbers of people employed in running the economic organs. In industry, the ratio of white-collar employees to workers rose from 1 in 10 in 1918 to 1 in 7 by 1920. And that's going to do it for this week. We'll be continuing with this chapter for probably about a month, give or take. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The intro and the outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts, as well as go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the network as a whole and get all sorts of other fun podcasts on there too. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.